Well, good morning, everybody. Early on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. A really good thing to do, and maybe you've already done this, and in fact, maybe you've already done this more than once, but a really good thing to do is to read all four accounts of that Easter Sunday from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to read all four accounts um, of that first Easter Sunday in one go. Because what actually happened on that morning, on that day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and what does it mean? Well, uh, if you do that, if you read all four accounts, you'll see that there are some marked differences between the accounts, suggesting that actually a lot of things happened on that day and that each account is, to some degree, a summary. Each author is being selective because there is so much to tell that, in fact, there is too much to tell. So each author is selective. But when you read the accounts together, it is also abundantly clear that each account is indeed remembering the same event. For they all agree on the same basic set of events. Very early on the morning of the first day of the week, that is to say on a Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb wherein the body of Jesus had been laid on the Friday before. We know from the other Gospels why she is going. Jewish burial rites were required for bodies to be anointed with large quantities of spices and herbs and so on and so forth. This ought to have happened at the time of burial. But the requirements of both the Passover and the Sabbath had delayed this. We also know from the other Gospels that Mary Magdalene went with other women too, but John focuses on Mary Magdalene, probably because she was the leader. All of the accounts agree that at the tomb, the women saw angels and were the first to hear the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, now, isn't it interesting that the, the beginning of Jesus' resurrected life seems to echo the beginning of Jesus' earthly life as a baby. In both those events, the good news is first communicated to somebody named Mary, and there's angels, and the first people to be commissioned uh, as evangelists of the good news are women. Well, uh, reading now from John's Gospel and jumping from verse 1 to verse 11, uh, let's read on. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, uh, John doesn't explain to us why Mary doesn't recognize Jesus at first. Of course, she wasn't expecting to see Jesus. As far as she was concerned, Jesus was dead. And she was expecting to encounter gardeners and caretakers. After all, she is on private property, uh, presumably without permission, because Jesus had been buried in um, somebody else's tomb. Um, And when we're expecting to see something, that's often what we see. We do tend to see very often that which we're expecting to see. But then she does recognize Jesus. And Mary is commissioned as an evangelist, the very first person to carry the good news. He is risen. Jesus has risen. And Jesus is alive. And um, perhaps we should note, because I think in passing it's, it's worthwhile to do so, we should note that what Jesus doesn't say to Mary. Um, Jesus doesn't say to Mary, don't cling on to me, Mary, because I've got stuff to do. And now that I've been restored to life, I intend to make the most of it because from this point on, I'm, I know that eventually I'm going to grow old and die. So for now, oh, I'd like to find somebody to marry and have lots of kids. I'm, I'm going to drink Diet Coke and ask myself, what else haven't I tried? And I make this point because the resurrection of Jesus is unlike the raising of Lazarus in John's Gospel. It's unlike the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark's Gospel. It's unlike the raising of the son of the widow of Nain in Luke's Gospel. Um, Jesus rose those, those people from the dead, but they all grew old and died. Jesus' resurrection is to eternal life. He's never going to grow old. He's never going to die. He is returning to the Father, our Father, to God, our God, in heaven. And of course, there are no dead people in heaven. Well, um, we now read that John supplies us with extra detail. Because in Luke's account... It is that it is it is it is it is Mary w- working as an evangelist that gets Peter up and running to the tomb to see for himself. But no, actually, we find out now in John's account that that's already happened. Mary didn't make one trip; she actually made two trips to the tomb, not one. Luke is summarizing um, the fuller version especially of this particular event, the fuller version comes from John, who tells us, returning back to verse 1, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. 
And um, the reason why John includes more detail than Luke is actually quite obvious. He was there. Um, Luke is giving us, Luke has collected eyewitness, eyewitness accounts, but Luke wasn't there, but John was. The author of the fourth gospel refers to himself obliquely as the beloved disciple or as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, no one knows for sure why he chose to refer to himself by way of that nickname, by way of that nom de plume, that, that pen name. Um, I have my own theory, but uh, now's not the time. Um, but we can be quite sure. We know that this person, the beloved disciple, is the, is the chief author of the book that we're, we're, that we're reading, the, the Gospel of John. He is an eyewitness. Um, of course, to us, the book comes anonymous. There's no name attached. But it's very clear from the text that the first recipients of this book, the first readers, they knew exactly who he was. He didn't need to put his name to it. He had a purpose in, in referring to himself obliquely because they knew exactly who he was. Um, and, and who is he? Well, church tradition has it that he is John, uh, son of Zebedee, brother of James. Uh, and there's strong evidence that that is the case. Um, of course, there's a bit of argument over that. Can we be absolutely certain? No, actually, we can't be absolutely certain. But what we can be certain about is that the author of this gospel was an eyewitness to all of Jesus' public ministry right from the start. Um, and most crucially for us today, he was an eyewitness right up to that day. Um, he was there on that morning. So, verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Well, um, that's full of eyewitness detail, isn't it? It's full of actually extraneous detail, unnecessary detail. And in actual fact, it seems to, you know, there seems to be a, a, a concern, perhaps a curiously masculine concern, in who actually got there first. But the material point is that the tomb was open. The body was gone. And the grave clothes were still there. The only reason why a tomb might be opened in the ancient world was to steal the cloth used to wrap the corpse. It's a, it was a valuable commodity in itself and well worth stealing if decomposition had yet to stain it. But the cloth was still there. This isn't grave robbers. So our author tells us he saw and believed. John believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. He now understands that that is true. Yet and nevertheless, 
This belief in the resurrection, though factually correct, wasn't yet saving faith in Jesus Christ. He was incapable of understanding that the resurrection was scriptural because he was yet to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he was incapable of understanding that the resurrection was both essential and inevitable because he was yet to, through the Spirit, truly understand who Jesus actually is. Well, John is on the journey of unfolding the mystery. The resurrection is a mystery. Um, it's a mystery that in, in all of the gospel accounts gets unwrapped bit by bit. It has layers. It's like, what has layers? An onion or that pr- or parfait. Everybody likes parfait. Uh, the, the, the resurrection has layers. It's like an onion. You un, 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 unlayer it bit by bit. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and, and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Well, Jesus is alive. Jesus has risen. His resurrection is not a resuscitation, as we've seen. But his resurrection is a bodily resurrection, for his body now is the same body, not a substitute body. Jesus showed them the holes in his hands and where the nails were and the hole in his side where the spear went in. In uh, Luke's account, Jesus then asks for something to eat and he's given broiled fish and he eats it in their presence. In, in, in John's account, he goes on to have breakfast with them on another occasion. This is, this is a man who eats and drinks, as we heard in our Acts reading as well. This is a bodily resurrection. He's not a ghost. And yet, he is different. He appears in their midst without using the door like a teleport system, to to borrow an analogy from science fiction. Or to use the terms that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, Jesus' natural body has been transformed into a spiritual body. This would also seem to mean that the spiritual body is in some ways not bounded by the limits of this earthly existence, the boundaries we know. Jesus perhaps might move across what what we might call dimensions, in ways we cannot yet know and only dimly imagine. This transformation from natural to spiritual body would also seem to mean a body that has life in itself, a self-sustainingly alive body, a life-giving spirit. We live only by sucking the life out of other things and killing them in the process. Whether it's carrots or camels, we live only by killing stuff. But Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that one day we too will be transformed by way of this same transformation from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable, 
from natural to spiritual. Verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So we've heard a little bit about uh, what happened on that first Sunday morning, that first Easter Sunday. What does the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth actually mean? Well, actually, it, it's got layers. It means a, a vast number of things. But let's start just today by considering what this passage tells us it means. Because Jesus says four things, and in these four things, Jesus speaks with the authority of God. He speaks as God in what he says. And the first thing he says, in fact, he says it twice, is peace be with you. In other words, what the resurrection means is that the cross worked. The resurrection is God's proof that the cross worked and that as a result of the cross, we are forgiven. We have peace with God. That's what the resurrection means. We're forgiven. The cross worked. What else? As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What Jesus is doing is he's speaking to the global church in neonatal form. All of his disciples in one place, together he is telling them, all his disciples, young and old, male and female, he commissions them now as his representatives. Just as Jesus represented the Father to Israel, so too now we are commissioned to represent Jesus in all that we do and say to the world. We, the disciples of Jesus, have a mission. That's what the resurrection means. We have a job to do. We're on a mission. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the disciples will continue to have the intimate presence of God. Formerly, they, they, they were walking with Jesus. They had the intimate presence of God in the form of Jesus in the flesh. Now, the disciples will have the intimate presence of God in the form of the Spirit in their hearts, the Spirit of Christ. So for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus is still with them, but through the Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of God's empowering presence, the power to represent Jesus to the world in all of the ways that Jesus represented the Father to Israel. We, the disciples of Jesus, have God's empowering presence with us in mission. That's what the resurrection means. Isn't that amazing? The last statement, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The, the spirit-filled, spirit-led community is to communicate to the world the gospel that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And those who don't believe are not forgiven. So we, the disciples of Jesus, we have a mission. 
In that mission, we have God's empowering presence to help with that mission. And that mission is a message. And that message is the gospel. And this is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what the resurrection means. Well, we've made some progress then this morning in determining what, firstly what happened on that first Easter Sunday and secondly, we've made some progress in determining what it means. Uh, we've begun to unwrap the first of many, many, many layers of what the resurrection means. I've, I guess today I've given us already enough things to think about, but in conclusion, I'd just like to say that since the days of the apostles, Christians have always understood that the bodily resurrection of Jesus on the third day is the principal Christian testimony. The principal idea, if you like. If it isn't true, then Christians ultimately have nothing useful to say and Christianity isn't true if Jesus didn't rise on the third day. But if it is true, it changes everything. And what we'll do, having started to unwrap the resurrection and all that it means is next week we're going to do a little bit more unwrapping when we look at resurrection truth and how it changed Thomas. So that's for next week. The, the Lord be with you.